production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Robin Minter Smyers, a partner at Thompson Hine and president of the City Club's board of directors. Over 50 million people worldwide are affected by dementia. Perhaps you, like me, are caring for or have lost a loved one affected by dementia. Or you've been diagnosed and are currently living with dementia. Despite its pervasiveness, dementia is too often stigmatized and too rarely discussed. This is why it gives me so much pleasure to introduce today's speaker, the former Dean of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Cleveland, the very Reverend Tracy Lind, who will be speaking on dementia from the inside out. This is the second time in recent years that we're welcoming the very Reverend Tracy Lind to the City Club stage. The first time, in October of 2016, she participated in a panel discussion on the journey of caring for those battling different forms of dementia. She openly and honestly shared her personal story in caring for her mother. A few weeks later, on November 8, 2016, Reverend Lind was diagnosed with the early stages of frontotemporal degeneration. She's here today to share her journey with dementia as a self-described torchbearer who curses the darkness of dementia and lights the path of grace-filled living with this disease. By way of brief background, Reverend Lind is the former Dean of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral and a city planner whose ministry has included work for social and environmental justice, interfaith relations, sustainable urban development, arts and culture, and progressive theology. Most recently, Reverend Lynn's ministry has extended to include the spiritual insights and lessons she has gained from a life complicated by dementia. This diagnosis hasn't stopped her from fully appreciating what life has to offer and what she has to give. In 2017, she shared her story on a tour of churches throughout Europe. She also is part of the think tank for the Association for Frontotemporal Degeneration. A native of Columbus, Ohio, Reverend Lind is an alumna of the Columbus School for Girls, and she holds a bachelor's degree in urban studies from the Honors College at the University of Toledo, a master's of community planning from the University of Cincinnati, and a master's of divinity from Union Theological Seminary in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming to the stage the very Reverend Tracy Lind.
Good afternoon. It's really wonderful to be here today. It's a bit overwhelming to see so many dear friends and colleagues, and it is truly an honor to speak at a City Club Friday Forum. It's been two years since I was diagnosed with early stage dementia. I had tried to ignore the increasingly obvious signs and symptoms, thinking that it was stress or normal aging or that I was one of the worried well. But one day in the spring of 2016, shortly before my 62nd birthday, I looked in a mirror and I did not recognize my own face. I wondered, who is that good-looking woman? <laughs> and then I looked around the room and realized there was nobody else in that restroom. After six months of tests and exams, I heard the words, Tracy, you have early stage dementia. It's probably frontotemporal degeneration. And a wonderful doctor told me that if my condition ran its usual course, I would eventually become unable to speak, read, write, and understand what others are saying. I couldn't believe my ears. Language has been at the core of my identity. And so on that fateful afternoon, which happened to be election day 2016, Emily and I began our journey into what I like to call the wilderness of dementia, disability, and discernment. It took me three months to finish my work as Dean of Trinity Cathedral. And following retirement, I sank into my own private world of grief, sequencing through those Kubler-Ross stages like a washing machine cycle over and over and over again. And six months after my diagnosis, I decided to reframe this interruption in my life, determined to transform it from an intrusion into an invitation and from a death sentence into a pilgrimage. And for the past year, we have been traveling around the globe and in eight countries, 18 states and 38 cities, I've spoken about dementia from the inside out and I've connected with others affected by it. And in doing so, I've been getting to know and learning to love the woman in the mirror, the woman whose face I didn't recognize. I was a pastor who could see you twice a year, address you by name, and remember to ask about your job search or inquire about your mother's health. But now, I might not recognize your face, and I probably won't recall your name. I was an executive who now finds it difficult to plan, organize, and manage projects. I'm a writer and a public speaker who often can't find words or make complete sentences. And I seem to have a daily quota for conversation. I'm a photographer who can no longer manage my camera settings, a sailor who has forgotten my knots, and a golfer who can't recall where my ball just landed. I'm a cyclist who regularly loses my balance and a hiker who now walks with a tentative stride. I'm a reader who struggles to remember what I just read and a foodie who has trouble ordering off of a menu. 
I'm a seasoned traveler who now gets anxious in airports and a city dweller who can no longer handle urban living. And yes, I'm an extrovert, probably the biggest extrovert you will ever meet, who now becomes overwhelmed at parties. You see, early onset dementia is robbing me of many of the strengths that I valued all these years. Dementia's in my DNA. My mother, maternal grandfather, and two aunts all died with it. I watched my mother and many others hide their dementia as if it were something to be ashamed of or embarrassed about, as if it were a weakness or a punishment or even a sin. If only she had eaten less red meat and more dark green leafy vegetables. <laughs> if only he had done the New York Times crossword puzzle every morning, especially on Saturdays. And if only she had practiced daily meditation consistently for the past 10 years. And the list goes on and on. I liken dementia to cancer in the 1960s or AIDS in the 1980s, an incurable disease spoken of in hushed voices. I refuse to live with my dementia on those terms. I believe that denial isn't useful, that honesty is important, that early detection and diagnosis can result in a longer and higher quality of life, and that transparency makes life easier for everybody involved. An early diagnosis allowed me to exit work gracefully, to put our affairs in order, to make plans for the future, trying to imagine how we might experience a high quality of life as my dementia progresses. It's also given me the opportunity to do what I love and to spend time with those whom I love. Honesty has afforded me the incentive to be intentional about self-care, exploring ways to manage and, and perhaps even slow the progress of my disease. And transparency has encouraged me to make sense of dementia and to do my very best to help destigmatize it. The word dementia describes a a collection of symptoms caused by brain damage or brain disease. While Alzheimer's is by far the most common type, there are lots of different kinds of dementia, just as there are many varieties of cancer. And because the specific type can only be determined for certain through an autopsy, people with dementia will tell you that at the time of our diagnosis, we all hear from our doctors the word probably. You have dementia. It's probably Alzheimer's or vascular or Lewy body or some other variety such as FTD. And that word probably can be very complicated because it leaves one hanging in a state of suspense. Frontotemporal degeneration, FTD, causes a progressive, gradual decline in behavior, language, executive function, and movement, with long-term memory usually intact. 
And because it is far less common and less understood, FTD, which generally affects people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, is frequently misdiagnosed. At present, there is no cure for FTD. Although its progression varies by individual, FTD does result in an inevitable decline with an average life expectancy of 7 to 13 years after the onset of symptoms. Since I've been an outlier most of my life, I hope to be an outlier in longevity. Like others living with dementia, many days are a struggle. And while I might not show it, in the words of Christine Bryden, a remarkable woman living with FTD, I often feel like a swan gliding above and paddling frantically beneath just to stay afloat. I have something called primary progressive aphasia. That is the loss of language. It is getting harder for me to speak and write, especially in the evening, in busy environments, in conversation, and when I'm feeling frustrated, hurried, or pressured. However, once I figure out what I want to communicate, and with the help of the Google Dictionary and spell check, and once I write it down, I can deliver my message with relative ease and confidence. As Emily likes to say, one day I can preach a kick-ass sermon, and the next day I can't put two sentences together. I've learned that language is a three-step process. We have to decide what we want to communicate, recall how to say or write it, and then we have to do it. And when you're struggling to think, speak, and write, this seemingly simple process is exhausting. And by the time I get to the third step, I often want to give up, or the conversation has moved on. I'm coming to realize that with the exception of involuntary actions like breathing, nearly everything we do is a three-step dance. We have to decide what to do, how to do it, and then do it. And this process comes so naturally that we deceive ourselves into believing that we can do several things at once, like drive and listen to the radio, admire the view, talk on the phone, follow directions, and eat a sandwich. <laughs> and I used to be like that. But brain scientists will tell you there really is no such thing as multitasking. We just do a lot of stuff really fast. And speaking of multitasking, please don't anybody text me during this speech because it's popping up on my iPad and confusing me. <laughs> People living with dementia can only do one thing at a time. And that becomes increasingly difficult as we desperately try to recall and execute the steps of the dance with as much grace as possible. I often get tentative and anxious. I'm afraid that I'll forget something important, not recognize someone I know, or that I will become overwhelmed by my environment. And I've learned that anxiety is an undercurrent of this disease. People with cognitive impairment often live on the edge of panic. But as I adjust to living with this condition and 
as we develop coping strategies, it's actually getting easier. For instance, I've curtailed my number of activities and conversations during the day. And thanks to speech therapy, I learned some descriptive workarounds for when I can't recall a word. With the help of a physical therapist, I've learned how to prevent falls. I've organized my closet into a fashionable capsule wardrobe so that I only see a limited number of items and they all go together. And yet, I can still change my clothes three times in one morning trying to decide what white shirt to put on. When we go out to a restaurant, we try to look at the menu in advance so that by process of elimination, I can decide what I will eat. And when we get there, we ask for a quiet table, and Emily reminds me of what I decided to order. And recently, we made the decision to sell our dream home overlooking the lake for a quieter neighborhood closer to family and friends and support systems. Since my diagnosis, I've been asking myself a lot of questions. Like, where is the grace in all of this? What are the unexpected gifts? What is the wisdom of a life affected by dementia? And I'd like to share with you some of these life lessons. The first one is no longer the captain. One of the realities of dementia is that as it progresses, your world becomes smaller and your realm of decision-making more limited. While I'm still able to manage daily living, I'm no longer able to lead a large and complex cathedral. I'm still able to drive, but we've given up a car, and in due time, I know I will be giving up that source of independence. And while I want to stay home as long as possible, there might come a time when I will need a level of care or I become so isolated that I will have to move into assisted living. So while I'm no longer the captain, I'm also discovering freedom in not being in charge, relief in not having to make so many decisions, and joy as I watch others take the helm. Do you remember the 1990s movie Regarding Henry, starring Harrison Ford? It's about a New York lawyer who gets shot in the head, and it brings his career to a screeching halt and leaves him with both brain damage and the spirit of a child. That's how I feel most days. I'm in this aging adult body with a brain that is damaged and a spirit that is becoming younger so that I often experience life through the eyes of a child. I ride my bike with new enthusiasm sometimes pretending like I'm on a horse. I explore tidal basins and I look at art with the curiosity of a kid. I laugh at silly bathroom jokes. I cry at the drop of a dime. I sometimes want my teddy bear. And there are moments when I reach for Emily's hand or she takes mine, not like a spouse or a lover, but like a child with her parent. Zen Buddhism teaches us about the beginner's mind, a place with many possibilities. Rachel Carson once wrote, a child's world is fresh and new and beautiful, full of wonder and excitement. And Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to become like a child. 
maybe dementia has given me a shortcut to nirvana. <laughs> the great wisdom teachers speak of dying to oneself and being reborn or losing life and finding it anew. Spiritual writer Richard Rohr calls this process falling upward into the second half of life. What I like to describe is the fullness of life. The first half of life, you know, is about building a container called identity and filling it with family and friends and education and career and hobbies and stuff. We also fill our containers with hopes and dreams and ambitions and aspirations. And the second half of life happens when, for various reasons, the contents of our identity containers are spilled out and refined. And the container, now worn, dirty, chipped, and perhaps even broken and reglued, is refilled. And now with all of its contradiction and paradox, its pain and joy, we hold our containers in what Rohr calls luminous gravitas, or a bright sadness. I realize that I'm falling upward into the fullness of life with dementia. I have no doubt that I'm losing the life I've always known, but I'm also certain that I'm finding a new one. When I deny the reality of my disease and grieve the lost aspects of my old identity, when I resist the emerging aspects of the new me, I get all tied up in knots. But when I accept what has died and let go of what has been lost and celebrate what is being reborn, when I try to love and care for the person that is emerging, I start discovering surprising gifts and strengths and a new kind of balance and wisdom and a new way of living in the world. I'm learning that Bobby McFerrin's 1988 number one hit, Don't Worry, Be Happy, actually teaches an important lesson about living with dementia. As he sings, in every life we have some trouble, when you worry, you make it double. I'm discovering that since I can't return to the past, and since I can't predict or control the future, and it doesn't look real pretty at times, I have to live in the here and now. I try not to worry about tomorrow, because as we know, tomorrow will bring worries of its own. And when I live in the past, life is pretty good except when it's not. As a pastor, I've taught that the cultivation of mindful living is essential for human well-being. I'm now learning firsthand that a regular daily routine and the intentional practice of mindful eating, physical and mental exercise, sleep, meditation, prayer, and stress reduction actually help to manage dementia. And moreover, neuroscientists are discovering that these mindfulness practices can really change the brain. Too many people with dementia just give up and think, I can't do anything. It's all over. And I thought that for a good while. And unfortunately, this attitude is reinforced by a world that approaches dementia from a deficit perspective, noting all that is lost and anticipating what is often called the long goodbye. That is not a helpful strategy 
So I'm trying to approach dementia from an asset perspective, just the way we've tried to approach Cleveland, right? I'm going to do what I can do until I can't do it. And then I'm going to do something else. As I've witnessed in so many people, and I now see in my own life, there are amazing opportunities to be had on this journey if we are willing and allowed to claim them. Emily and I are really trying to turn our life with dementia into a pilgrimage and an adventure in learning and spiritual growth. I like to call it our own elder hostel. <laughs> when we walked the Camino de Santiago in Spain nine years ago, we learned that everyone walks at their own pace and experiences it differently. And the same is true for dementia. They say if you've met one person with dementia, you've met one person with dementia. So as we walk this new path, we're following the advice of the Sufi mystic and poet Rumi, who said, wherever you stand, be the soul of that place. We are determined to embrace the situation in which we find ourselves seeking the good that it has to offer. So we've even turned my doctor appointments into afternoon dates. You know, people often say to me, Tracy, you don't seem like you have dementia. And I bet some of you are thinking that right now. But what does that mean? That a person with dementia is wandering around a memory unit with cookie crumbs on her shirt, wearing adult diapers, holding a stuffed animal, staring into space, and maybe babbling or moaning. That's not me nor is it any of the other folks I've met who are living with early to mid-stage dementia. Some days I feel like my old self, and I question the diagnosis. But then something will happen. I might get disoriented in a building, or overwhelmed in a crowd, or frightened in an airport, or startled on a busy sidewalk. I might start stuttering, or blurting out, or even shouting out incorrect words or incomplete sentences as I try desperately to make myself understood. I might even go to speak and nothing comes out of my mouth. I might forget to brush my teeth or take a shower or take my medicine. I might become inundated and immobilized by choices and decisions or forget how to do a simple task that I've done all my life. I might have a tantrum in public, or burst into tears for no good reason, or even help myself to food off a stranger's plate. <laughs> Recently happened on an airplane. It was really embarrassing. <laughs> These are the moments that remind me that, yes, <laughs> I'm cognitively impaired. I've learned that denial is a common issue when it comes to dementia. Because it's such a devastating diagnosis, people want to offer comfort by saying things like, we all forget where we placed our keys, or we, we all can't recall our best friend's name. And I got to tell you, such well-intended remarks are neither comforting nor are they helpful, because they reinforce an unhealthy cycle of denial and doubt. I'm coming to conclude and based on conversations with some of my new friends, 
that acceptance is one of the most difficult but critical aspects of living with cognitive impairment. Those of us with early to mid-stage dementia are not sitting in chairs lost in space. We're adapting to the best of our ability, believing that if we and those around us are honest about our reality, the truth will set us free to enjoy our life with it. You know, it's not surprising that people living with dementia and our spouses often go to the sidelines and eventually drop out of sight, crossing to the other side of life as we once knew it. And then, as the old saying goes, out of sight, out of mind. My mother sadly learned that once confined to a memory unit, friends and family didn't visit. They found it painful or scary, inconvenient. Maybe they thought it was contagious. As dementia runs its course, we often end up on walkers in wheelchairs and eventually confined to bed. And at the end stage, we become very reliant on the kindness of others, even strangers. So I'm making a list of the music and the films, the poetry, the food, the flowers, the clothing, the television shows, and the daily routines that I enjoy so that when I'm not able to communicate, my caregivers will know my personal tastes, not theirs. Your doctors and your lawyers probably aren't going to tell you to do this. But I think what I call the playlist of my life is as important as my living will and my health care power of attorney. One of the messages I want to leave with you today is the importance of being with us until the end of life's journey. Dementia is a long, long road. When we can no longer attend community gatherings, the community needs to come to us. When we can no longer remember who we are, others become our memory. When we can no longer care for ourselves, spouses become lovers and children become companions in new ways. When our families get exhausted, friends and neighbors can offer respite. When we need assistance, caregivers must resist the temptation to infantilize us, but rather treat and see and respect us as mature adults. My last lesson is gratitude. While I would have never, ever, ever wished for this diagnosis, in a strange way, I am profoundly grateful. Dementia has opened up my world in ways beyond my imagination. It has helped me to see the preciousness and uncertainty of life. It has provided Emily and me with a new adventure in togetherness maybe too much togetherness for her. And it's introduced us to new friends all over the world. It has forced me to slow down and smell the roses. It has humbled me. And it has called me to what others say might become the most important chapter of my ministry. You see, I've decided to view my dementia in a way similar to how the Dalai Lama refers to his exile as an opportunity to get closer to life. Dementia is the seventh leading cause of death in the world, the foremost leading reason for disability and dependence among the elderly, and it is a growing, growing public health crisis. Though not a normal part of aging, one in three people over the age of 85 and one in 10 over the age of 65 will have some form of dementia. 
And based on these statistics, in Cuyahoga County alone, there are probably more than 20,000 people living with this condition. Dementia doesn't discriminate, but access to quality care does, sometimes causing financial ruin for those affected by it. Frankly, I worry that as boomers start to age and dementia begins to accelerate at a more rapid pace, this condition could bankrupt Medicare and Medicaid. And in this political climate, I'm fearful that we'll start warehousing those who don't have family support systems, can't take care of themselves, and can't afford assisted living. Anticipating the growth in dementia as our population ages, cities around the nation and the globe, including Pittsburgh, Fort Worth, Louisville, Denver, and London, are becoming dementia-friendly communities. They are deliberately cultivating the ability of people living with dementia and their families to thrive and remain engaged in the community. According to the organization Dementia Friendly America, in dementia friendly communities, banks and businesses, restaurants and even taxi drivers learn how to accommodate customers who have cognitive impairment. Through generous family leave policies, employers support workers who are caregivers to someone living with dementia. First responders learn how to recognize the signs of dementia and act accordingly. In dementia-friendly communities, healthcare systems promote early detection and diagnosis. And faith communities intentionally welcome and make accommodations for those living with dementia. In dementia-friendly communities, local governments design and build housing and transportation and public spaces that will allow us to live independently. And community residents learn how to interact sensitively and create networks of support. And in dementia-friendly communities, residential care providers and community agencies offer a wide range of services that maximize independence and encourage ongoing community involvement. Anticipating what I believe is a public health tsunami in the making, I think that Greater Cleveland should join this movement. Building upon our existing assets and coupled with our affordable cost and high quality of life, perhaps becoming a dementia-friendly com community could actually result in further economic development and population growth. And moreover, it's the right and the just thing to do. One of the challenges for people living with dementia is that we lose the ability to tell our own stories and advocate on our own behalf. That is why, for as long as I am able, I am determined to tell my story of dementia from the inside out. And I thank you all for listening. Today, we are listening to a forum with the very Reverend Tracy Lind. For those of you who are listening, she just received a standing ovation. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, 
City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via radio broadcast or live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will try to work it into the program. Holding the microphones today are Content Coordinator Bliss Davis and Marketing and Outreach Coordinator Julia Wong. May we have the first question, please? Thank you for your grace, your dignity, your courage, and your candor. You've lifted us, but that's what you do. You talked about well-intended people saying things that don't lift you. Help us bridge how to talk to people who have various afflictions from your perspective and your background as a pastor. How do we help people and not give unintended consequences but lift them but be able to share how we're feeling too? Thanks, Beth, and, and thank you for your friendship. Um, I, I think the first thing is to, when somebody tells you what's going on in their life, to acknowledge it, to not try to dismiss it, to not say it's not real or you sure it's not your imagination. And then I think to ask the person, how can I be most supportive? How? What do you to ask them to tell you what their struggle is like and what it's about and what and, and what's hard and, and what's easy when it comes to supporting the spouses and care partners of people with living with dementia? It's also important to say if they can't answer, how can I help? Is to say I can do this for you. Would that be helpful? Um, but I think what I'm really trying to say is if I tell you my truth, to not negate it and to enter into the conversation with me. I, I think sometimes people with dementia, we are like a mirror for people because it's so frightening for everybody. We don't want to acknowledge its truth. Hi, thank you very much, uh, uh, Reverend Lindis. This, this was an amazing story for all of us to hear. Um, and I know we have, um, I do government relations, and uh, I know we have some policymakers that are here in the audience. And for decades, we've been calling it the decade of the brain. And because everybody really does want to figure out a good way to, to solve this and, 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 and follow the same success we have had with AIDS and other types of diseases. Um, are, you, are you telling your story to policymakers and others? and, and what kind of, how can we help you get this word out about how, how to address this from the inside out the way you just told your story? Well, thank you. Um, Emily and I made a decision. We would go where we were invited and do what we were asked to do. So I'm willing to speak in as many places as I can. And uh, most of my speaking has been in the context of the faith community. Um, because that's been my access. Um, but I am more than delighted to speak with policymakers, with, with medical schools, with doctors. I, I think um, invite me, and I will do my best to show up. There's also a particular piece of legislation called, is it the HOPE? The BOLD Act. The BOLD Act. Um, and, and I, I can't remember what it means right now, but it, it's an act that will provide good quality funding and a continuum of care for, for Alzheimer's and other dementias. So yes, invite me and I'll show up. 
Thank you, Tracy, for your wonderful presence and companionship. Um, most of us know you as a person of committed and profound prayer life. Have there been changes in your experience or practice of prayer that might be a gift to us? Thank you, Bishop, for that question. Um, you know, I, my prayer life has become way more silent. Um, um, the joke is I can now go, go on a silent retreat. <laughs> I think a lot, a lot of my prayer is in silence. It's, it's also in the body. Um, my yoga studio has become a very important place of prayer for me. Um, I'm swimming um, three or four times a week, and swimming my laps is a place of prayer for me. Um, and yes, I still take heart and find nourishment in gathering with the faith community and singing the hymns and um, being a part of our rituals. But, you know, I've had a pretty good relationship with God all these years, and I just become more and more convinced that in God I live and move and have my being, and, and nothing will separate me from that no matter what happens. So, yeah, it's changed a little bit. Thank you. Reverend Lynn, thank you so much for your remarks. It's really an eye-opener. The question I would like to ask is the opposite of the first question that was put to you. And my, my question is when I, as an individual, am dealing with someone that I perceive to be in the early stages of dementia, but that person is in denial, what suggestions can you make as to how to break through to that person to get them to accept their condition and perhaps do something about it? Well, that's a great question. Some of the people in this room have known me as a pastor for a long time and know that I'm pretty direct with folks. I think that if somebody you loved was showing the signs of not being able to breathe very well or showing the signs of a cardiac condition or showing the signs of serious addiction, the loving thing to do is to say something. And I, and I think we are so afraid of embarrassing somebody or overstepping the bounds that, that, I, but that we don't say anything. Um, and I think if somebody I loved was showing the signs of dementia, I would say, you know, I'm really worrying about you. Have you talked to your doctor about this? And if not, I would encourage you to talk to your doctor about this. Um, one of the things that I find in my speaking around the country and around the globe is it's like opening up Pandora's box. Is by naming it, it's, it's naming that elephant in the room and, and, and people are starting to kind of come out of the closet and whisper to me, hey, I, I've been worried about this. Um, and the, the truth of Pandora's box is lots of bad things fly out of it, but also hope flies out of it. And so the hopeful and loving thing to do is to say, I really am worried about you. Um, I have a website. It's just tracylynn.com, and I, I write a blog. And 
You know, one of the things you could do is invite that person to take a look at some of what I've been writing or saying or other people like me. Um, and if it's somebody really close to you, then offer to go to, the hot, to, to see the doctor with them. Thank you, Reverend Lynn, for your message. My father is also a clergy person who's dealing uh, newly with dementia. And I know one of the things that he's talked about is feeling so isolated. And are, are you aware of, and you may have partially answered my question with the last answer about your vlog, are you aware of networks or resources both for people with dementia who can network with one another and also for family members and other support people to better understand the disease and how we can all speak with one another, make it less isolated? Thank you for asking that question. Uh, absolutely. The Alzheimer's Association has fabulous support groups for both people living with dementia and for our spouses and families, care partners, children, parents. Uh, the Association for Frontotemporal Degeneration also has support groups. We have a Facebook group and, and we have a weekly Zoom group for those who want to participate. And I think it's really important to participate in those support groups, even if you just go to the Facebook page and you sort of look. Uh, you have to sort of say, I have it. But yeah, and, and I, think, I, I think, I mean, doctors might debate me on this, but I think we're going to see a lot more dementia in our generation and a lot less in future generations to come. And so I think those support groups are going to become more and more prevalent and more and more important. But you, you can't walk this journey by yourself. I have to tell you, the most painful thing is, I think, back on it now, was my mom's inability to say it out loud. And, and my resistance and my brother's resistance when my beloved community of Judson said, it's time for her to be in a memory unit. We didn't want to deal with it. We didn't want to see it. Um, and I think if we had been able, as a family, to talk about it earlier, it would have been, her quality of life would have been so much better. And, and I would have learned so much from her. So we've got to be talking about it. Support groups, yeah. Hey, Tracy. Um, would you talk about, um, about Emily, about the role that your spouse plays and the the learning that goes on in in your marriage as this as this has unfolded as this journey has progressed. Thanks, Dan. Sure, uh, Emily's got a new job title. It's called Chief Logistics Officer. <laughs> she she is in charge of the logistics of our life. She has to figure out how to get us where we're going, and 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 she has to cue me a lot. And um, I I don't know how I would do this alone, frankly. Um, and, you know, I think it's really hard for care partners. In, 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 in fact, um, the Alzheimer's Association talks about this pretty directly, that, that care partners provide billions of dollars of unpaid care for their loved ones, and they often become so stressed that sometimes they even die before the person with dementia dies because they're still managing a family and a home and jobs and, and 
in the case of FTD, which affects those of us in our middle years, raising children. So Emily has always been, for nearly 20 years, my best friend. But she is now my companion on this journey. She also is speaking everywhere we go. Uh, we now speak together. She one day said to me, I'm tired of being your roadie. I have something to say. <laughs> and she's been saying it. I, Emily did not want to speak today, so I will say the one thing that she as a care partner hates is when people come up to her and they take her hand and look her in the eye and say, how are you really? So don't anybody do that today. Um, but she does say that care partners appreciate folks reaching out to them about them, not about us, about, about them and remembering their birthdays and taking them to lunch or offering to stay, I'm not at this stage yet, but in the more advanced stages to stay with me or somebody with dementia so they can, they can have a life. So I hope, did I say enough, Emily? Okay. <laughs> thank you, Reverend. As a City Club regular, I wanna thank you for presenting one of the very best forums that I've ever heard. If this question is too personal, please feel free not to ask it. As a person of faith, has it been difficult for you to reconcile your faith with your diagnosis? Thank you for asking that question. It's, a, it's an, an important question. In fact, so important that a man by the name of John Swinton, a Scottish theologian, has written a whole book about it. It, it has not been hard for me with my faith. God did not give this to me. God didn't punish me with this. God didn't give it to me so that I could stand up here and talk. My God is a God who stands with me no matter what happens and who will show me the way through no matter what happens. And so briefly, I will tell you that after my diagnosis, we had to get out of town for a while. We needed to get away. And we took a transatlantic cruise to Europe to be at the American Cathedral in Paris for, for Easter. And on that cruise for 4,000 nautical miles, I, I tried to come to terms with all of this. And, and as we were crossing through the Strait of Gibraltar, at crossing between the continents of, of Europe and of Africa, at midnight on Monday, Thursday, which for those of you who are not Christians, that's in the middle of the Holy Week uh, between Palm Sunday and Easter. Right at midnight, our boat started rocking and rolling and something in me shifted. And I heard a voice inside of me that I've heard before say to me, you can deal with this and you can face this. And on Easter, when the preacher said, Christ is risen and we rise, which is our way of talking as Christians about new life, I felt myself rising. And, and again, I, I heard the God whom I know by many names and people come to through many paths say, I will walk with you through this from now until the end. I don't worry about being forgotten by God. And I'm not angry with God. Um, but I know that that's hard for others. 
And that's part of why I'm trying to do the work that I'm doing. We have a question from Twitter next. Um, so you've mentioned um, a lot of things that you hope to see for the um, future of dementia in our stages of our lives. Um, what is next on your list? What do you hope to accomplish? And is there a timeline to that? Well, when, when I was, I'm glad you asked that question. I was down in Birmingham, Alabama, and I was, uh, we were leading a clergy conference and we were speaking in um, a large church in Birmingham. And they were all excited because the congregations, the faith community of Birmingham had come together to start a respite program, a day program for people living with dementia. And every congregation was taking a different day of the week. And it was a morning program. Um, and it was about music and art and food and companionship. And everybody who went to it, whether you had dementia or not, you were considered a volunteer. And as I said to you, we, we are having to sell our home, uh, our brand new 12 years left on tax abatement home with a permanent view of Lake Erie, permanently protected home, and an elevator. Anybody interested, speak to us. Anyway. We're, we're moving back to the heights because that's where my embedded memory is. Uh, I remember the stuff that happened a long time ago. I don't remember what happened five minutes ago. So we're moving back to the heights and we're moving down the street from a bunch of very interesting churches. And, and one of the things I want to explore doing is seeing that if in the heights we could start this respite program and I'd like to help get it started uh, before I need it. And so that's one of my thoughts, and I'd like to see Benjamin Rose, and I'd like to see Judson, and I'd like to see McGregor partner with the congregations in the Heights to start this project. So I'm really glad that the rector of St. Paul's Episcopal Church <laughs> down the street from me is here today. So you heard it now, Jeannie. Um, and, I, and I also would really like to explore seeing if we can designate um, Cleveland as a dementia-friendly city, greater Cleveland as a dementia-friendly community, um, because I think there, it would be with our healthcare community here and our arts and our culture and our affordable cost of living, I think this could be yet a wonderful way to promote the city as a retirement community. So uh, thank you for asking whoever did. And that's my cue, I get to stop. God bless you all, thank you. Today at the City Club of Cleveland, we have been listening to a forum with the very Reverend Tracy Lind. Today's forum is part of our Local Heroes series sponsored by Citizens Bank and Dominion Energy. We're delighted to have Brittany O'Connor from Citizens Bank and Tracy Oliver and Ben Kreck from Dominion Energy with us today. Thank you for your support of City Club programming. 
The community partner for today's forum is the Benjamin Rose Institute on Aging. Additionally, we welcome guests from tables hosted by the Cleveland Clinic, the Episcopal Diocese of Ohio, In Council with Women, Judson Services, Luma Wealth Advisors, and St. Paul's Episcopal Church. We thank all of you for being here today. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Reverend Lind. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, the and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.